0: Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message.
1: Uh, Our scripture this morning is from uh, Genesis 15. We'll be reading the entire chapter. uh, And let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them Then he said to him so shall your offspring be and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness and He said to him I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess But he said O Lord God How am I to know that I shall possess it? he said to him bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and, behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated.
0: I've been spending time recently with a friend of mine, um, who's born and raised uh, Jewish, uh, culturally practicing Jew, who has been wanting to spend time with me because he's spiritually interested, wanted to ask questions about the gospel, investigate Christianity. And uh, he and I were talking in his office uh, the other week, and I was explaining some things to him and trying to argue and and, um, make a case for something about the gospel. And he just paused and and looked at me and just said, how do you know? He was like, how do, how do you know this is, this is real? And then he sort of made it more personal. He was like, how do you know this kind of God would accept somebody like me? And I remember that question, it, it, just, it just stopped me in my tracks. How, how do you answer that? How do you look at somebody with assurance? Because one of the things that the Bible wants you to know for sure is that you can be sure. There there is no part of the Christian life that is ever designed from Scripture to leave you uh, guessing and to leave you wondering. We are looking at uh, the life of Abraham this summer, and what's fascinating is is this particular text in Genesis 15, verse 6, is a verse that is used uh, by multiple New Testament authors to communicate to uh, all kinds of people that you can be sure. They write a letter to people who um, are living wild lifestyles, people who are unsure that they're doing enough for God to accept them, and then to people who um, are sort of hypocritical, who think they're Christians, but there's nothing in their lifestyle that reflects that whatsoever. And every single time the New Testament authors come back to this text, in Genesis 15 to talk about the ability to be sure of what true faith is. Are you sure? There's nothing more important than figuring that out This right now, that you can be sure. And you you know how you can learn that this morning is by looking at two things with me in this text. One, the doubts of Abraham, and two, the answers of God. First, the, the doubts of Abraham. So verses one through three, um, Abraham uh, is, is there, and it says, God comes to him. It says, the word of the Lord. This is actually a, a famous language that's used for the prophets multiple times, but it's the only time it's used in the first five books of the Bible. And uh, Abraham's the only person that God actually comes this way to. And it says, the word of the Lord came to him, and he says, fear not, for I am your shield, your reward. You shall be, shall be very great. Now, why is God doing this? Well, what happens in the previous chapter, in chapter 14, is uh, Lot, his cousin, excuse me, his nephew, uh, is captive by a very dangerous group of people, a very dangerous tribe, and Abraham goes, risks his life and rescues him, and he's afraid of retaliation. He's afraid they're now going to come after him and kill him. And he's also simultaneously then wondering, if you kill me... What's going to happen to this promise that you've said my family will be very great because I don't even have a child yet? How in the world are you going to protect me and actually make this promise very true? And so, what he's sort of saying here right from the beginning is God, I'm I'm having doubts about you. I'm having doubts about what you've said. I'm having doubts about your promises. And what God does is it says, Come with me. They go outside and he says, Look up at the stars. He says, if you can count them, you should know that your offspring will be more than this. And then it very famously says that Abraham believed that, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So right away, he has this doubts about God, and then God comes and speaks to him. And then in, in verse 7, it comes again. and He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, give you this land to possess, but he, that's Abraham, in verse 8 says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, he's having doubts. Now, one question is to ask is, is this kind of what the Christian life is like? Where God tells you something, you believe it, then you doubt it, but then he tells it to you again. And it's a little bit like that, but this, is, this doubt is not the same as the previous doubt. Because when he says, how shall I possess it? What Abraham's doing is he's tapping into this idea of a contract, of a covenant relationship that God has established with him, that God says, hey, Abraham, you will get this, but you must walk before me. I will pledge this, and you must be a part of this. And so Abraham at first is having doubts because of the other foreign country wondering, God, can I trust you? that you're going to provide away for my family. But now he's also having doubts, not just about God, but he's having doubts about himself. Not just, will you hold up your end of the bargain, but, but can I hold up my end of the bargain? And th- this is where we begin to learn about Abram and the nature of doubt, is that doubt is at sometimes doubting about who God is and what God promises, but at other times is doubting ourselves. And can we be a part of this? Now, let's talk about doubt for just a minute because some of you doubt, or you have children who doubt, or you have friends who doubt, or you have people who you want to speak to with doubts. What can we learn about doubt? A couple things. A, you really learn here about the source of doubt. Look, I know people, you probably know people, maybe in your family, your house, or your neighborhood, who say this Look, I'm not religious. I'm spiritually inclined, but I could never do what you're doing. And some of the times people say this and they think this because they look out at the world and it is really hard at times to understand and to make sense. Is there really a God? And is really the Bible a trustworthy way to know Him? That's that's a valid question. How How do we know that this is real? And sometimes they're really asking this, but a lot of times, that question is masked in something else. And a lot of times, that question is masked in not just a doubt about God, but a doubt about oneself. That if there is a God, that when I think that there's got to be more than life, than just my job, and just this thing I'm going after, the grind every single day there's times I begin to wonder, there is more to life than this. There is a purpose. There is something beyond this world. But when I look at myself, I wonder in the world, could he accept me? A lot of psychologists will tell you this, that a teenager who hates his parents and wants nothing to do with his parents almost has nothing to do with the nature of the parent's love. Like when a teenager just... wants nothing to do with you, Uh, immediately the parent just goes, have I been too harsh? Have I been too lenient? Have I been too passive? Have I been too intense? Like, have I not been home enough? Am I home too much? And there are definite cases where that is true, but a lot of times what psychologists will say is the reason the kid wants nothing to do with your love has nothing to do with your love, but their doubt that they're worthy of love. Do Do you remember the 90s movie, Um... Goodwill Hunting with Robin Williams and Matt Damon, where uh, Matt Damon is this very troubled man he's a, who's a genius, but he has all sorts of, of psychological, social problems that come from a, a horrible background. And they're in um, Robin Williams' office, who's a counselor, and they're trying to, so he's trying to tap into his life. And he begins to discover Matt Damon, just. he won't let anybody love him. He won't trust anybody. He won't let anybody near. He just pushes everybody away. I want nothing to do with you. And Robin Williams is trying to push through, trying to push through, trying to push through. And finally he pulls out this file of his whole story and he begins to read it. And he just starts saying to him, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And the more he says it, the more Matt Damon immediately starts pressing back, starts pushing back. I don't want to trust you. I want nothing to do with you. And finally just breaks down. And what you begin to see in that picture is the reason he he won't trust anybody, the reason he won't move towards anybody has nothing to do with anybody else but the whole idea of how much he doubts himself. Now, how many of you doubt yourself? And you wonder, if there is something in me that God could never love? Because sometimes you mask that in questions that you're not even concerned about. But the source of doubt is so much with what you think that you're worthy of. Another thing we learn here about doubt is the nature of doubt. Look, when Abram asks this question, How can I know I can trust you? He's, he's like, I don't have a child. You told me I would get a child, you told me my family would do all of this. My only offspring is Eleazar. Now, he's sort of reasoning a little bit from his circumstances, but you need to know this. It took faith for Abraham to engage that doubt. Here's the nature of of doubts. Look, it takes faith to move from doubts, but it also takes faith to have a doubt. Because everything that Abraham is saying to God, he can't prove that he'll never have a child And a couple chapters later, he will get that, but he doesn't know that yet. And what he's doing is he's believing that this is a possibility and this is real. And one of the things with doubt that you have to realize is that if you have them, is it takes just as much faith to embrace a doubt as it does to leave a doubt. And it's not as though that a Christian is somebody who has faith and somebody who's secular just has rationality and evidence. No, 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 no. The question, what happens to you after you die? You can't prove what happens or doesn't happen. It takes just as much faith to doubt that as it does to believe that God does something with that. The third thing we learn with doubt here is that doubt has a power. Look, when we hear people with doubts, immediately they're like, ugh. But look, if you have a church and you have a place that never allows for doubts to be voiced. You know what that does? Is it actually creates more doubt. Some of you have doubts that are really power that are really holding on to you because you've never been able to voice them and never been able to talk about them. But what you learn from this text is actually doubt can be a powerful vehicle into faith. Now, one of the things the culture can do dangerously for us is make Doubt a virtue, as if uh, if, if you doubt things, that that's actually the intellectual thing to do. And, and look, the Bible is, has something so much more profound and sophisticated than that. It's that doubt's not a virtue, but it's also not a terrible thing. And one of the most powerful places you see this is in the New Testament with a guy named Thomas. He's one of Jesus' disciples, and he's following Jesus. And he, when he dies, he thinks that's it. We put our eggs in the wrong basket. This was foolish. Why were we following this man? And after Jesus is raised from the dead, he starts appearing to people, and he appears to some of the disciples, and Thomas says, I don't believe. Even though you said he's back, I don't believe it. And so what happens is Jesus comes to this man, and he says, Touch my hands. See my scars. And then what Thomas gives is the greatest profession of faith in the gospel of John. He says in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. No one had called Jesus that, as far as John's record is, up until that moment. And what you learn about Thomas is it wasn't in spite of his doubts, it was through his doubts that he actually began to embrace Jesus the way that Jesus was meant to be embraced, Look, if you have doubts, or your children have doubts, or you know somebody has doubts, don't freak out on them. Don't, don't embarrass them, don't shame them in that. Because so much, Descartes used to say is, you know the way to become concerned of something is to begin by being skeptical of it. Is that often what doubts will do is ask and unearth questions that need to be asked. And You, you, know, you know what's so great about the Bible? is it has more profound answers than you have questions. And your doubts are so often a way to get to that. Look, Jude 1, 22, it says this, be merciful to those who doubt. Look, be a church that welcomes doubters, that lets people work through their doubts, that doesn't think something's wrong with them if they're going through a season of doubts. Because what God does here to Abram is he meets him in his doubt. One of the ways to become certain is to understand and empathize and realize the doubts that Abram had. Secondly though, to that, God gives an assurance. Look in verse nine. What does God say after, the, after day Abram has the, the, the doubts? He says, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against one another. But he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, what in the world is going on? They bring these animals... They chop them in half and put them on opposite sides. And what they're actually doing is creating an, an aisle. And Abram knows exactly what's going on. He says, okay, the way you're going to answer my doubts is you're going to create a, co- a contract. It's called a covenant. And today, you know, in, in a written culture that we have, it's hard to exaggerate how much the printing press changed the world. Because in our day and age, if you're going to do... Uh, A contractual relationship with somebody, you're going to bring a certified document with signatures, with dates, and everything has got to be uh, official, uh, turned in, certified. But in that pre-written culture, in an oral culture, you didn't sign anything, you acted it out. And what you would do is you would act out the consequences of breaking the covenant. So when they took the animals and they split them in half, what they're saying is, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. May I be cut off. May I be cut in two. May I die if I don't hold this up. Now, this was a regular thing done in the culture. And Abram, when he hears this, it is actually not encouraged Because he thinks, okay, here's how God's going to assure me. He's going to bind me to something very severe that if I break, this is what's going to happen to me. And in that culture, when a king would do this with a vassal, a lesser party, what would happen is the person who's being absorbed would think, well, this king is merciful by not killing me and at least letting me be in some sort of working relationship with them. So when they would act it out, the vassal, the lesser party, would walk through the pieces and the king would sit up on his throne and watch it happen. Basically, like, I'm letting you be in a relationship with me, so you hold up your commitment. And if you hold up your commitment, then you and I are good. And that's how most people think about faith. That God, if you get your life together, if you're willing to be very serious and hold up your end of the commitment then God will let you be in a relationship with him. But that's not what happens at all. What happens here has to be utterly stunning to Abram. Because it says in verse 12 that a dreadful darkness falls upon Abram. Now the dreadful darkness it says here, he falls into a deep sleep in a dreadful and great darkness. Now the dreadful and great is a a Hebrew way, it's actually the same word twice designed not to to emphasize, to make an enormous point that the darkness and the sleep that Abram falls in, it's not just physical. It's not just him taking a nap and dozing off. It's that he begins to experience something that is terrifying. It's like a nightmare. It's like the scariest thing he's ever experienced, certain of no love, of no promises. And then God explains to him the promises that he's going to hold up. Then in verse 17... It says, "Behold, a smoking firepot and blazing torch moved through the pieces." Now, real quick, the book of Genesis is written to Israelites who have left Pharaoh, who have left Egypt, and are wandering in the midst of the wilderness, wondering if God has led them out to die and is good. And actually, when they're wondering, because it's in the middle of the desert. The way that they survive is during the day, a pillar of smoke protects them from the sun. And at night, because it's freezing in the desert, a pillar, he becomes a pillar of fire to keep them warm and protect them. And so what they would have known and they would have seen is when this covenant happens, God moves through the pieces. Like no, no king would have done this. No God would do this. It's a stunning thing for Abraham to see that God, the one who makes the promises, is the one who moves through the pieces to uphold the covenant. And it's not just stunning that God moves, it's also stunning what doesn't happen. Because then it says in verse 18, after the smoking fire pot and blazing torch moves through it says, and on that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram. Abram never walks through the pieces. He's asleep the whole time. He's utterly out. Which means here's what, what typically happened in a culture. The lesser party, the one who needs protection, the one who needs provision is the one who holds up all of the covenant, who holds up all of the commitment. But in this moment when the Lord God meets Abram, It's not the lesser party. It's the Lord God, the king. The creator of the universe is the one who moves in and holds through and says, Abram, not just may this happen to me if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, but he's saying to Abram, may this happen to me if you don't hold up your end of the bargain. When God comes to his people and says, you want to know If you can be my child and you can trust me, here's why. Because he says, if I don't say who I am and provide to you everything that the Scriptures say that you should be given, then may I be cut off, may I be killed, may I die. And he says, if you can't uphold your end of the bargain, if your sin gets in the way of upholding your end of the agreement, may this happen to me. Look, the promises of God are one-sided and gracious. Look, He says, I will do this. All through the book of Abraham, or me, the life of Abraham, There's a repetitive phrase of God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. You almost never hear God say, you must, you must, you must. The whole story is about how God comes and meets this man who cannot stop screwing up, who cannot stop falling away, and continually pledging himself to him over and over and over and over again. What a covenant is, is it's not you. Listen, faith is not your commitment. It is living in light of God's commitment to you. When you get married and you put a ring on your finger, it's amazing to me sometimes people, we don't remember this. You know, this ring is not my pledge to my wife. What happens, do you remember this, in the ceremony is you're standing there and the the officiant says, take this ring, put it on the other person's finger and repeat after me. This is a token and pledge of my constant faith and abiding love. What that means is this is not a sign of my love, it's a sign of her love. And so what I do is I walk around looking not, I've got to remember to be faithful to her. I walk around looking at my hands saying, I remember someone loves me and someone is devoted to me and that's what the covenant of God has meant to be for you. You want, you want to know why you can be sure? It's because you ought to be able to look all of the time at something that Abram never ever got. In Mark 15, 33, it says when Jesus was on the cross, darkness spread about the whole land, a darkness greater than Abram experienced, a darkness that was darker than he went under. That God right there is signifying to all of us, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. But if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, may this happen to me. Here's how you can be sure. Because you can look back on Good Friday forever and know that even if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, the living God, the creator of all things, has pledged himself to me. Now, the point of this sermon is for you to leave with faith and assurance. So, two applications to that. A. To have real assurance you have to grow up in your faith. Now what do I mean? In verse thirteen, uh, it says as the Lord God said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Now, here's what's what's profound about this. When God is getting Abram to trust him, this is not like buying a car. You know, where they tell you all of the amazing things and don't tell you anything about the fact that they've never changed the oil the first 50,000 miles. He, this is not a lie. This is not a spin-over. <laughs> he says, your offspring, it will be like the number of the stars, but for 400 years, they're going to go into slavery. Look, some people think that faith in Christ is just blind, you know, closing your eyes and missing out on the hard parts of life. But that's a baby theology, and it's a baby faith. I think I've, I've, I've said this to you before, but, you know, when you, when you talk to your kids about, uh, about sex, and they say, where, where do babies come from, mom? Well, w- when they're very little, you say, mommy's tummy. You know, and then they become a teenager and all of a sudden, you know, they're having these classes in school, it it becomes a little bit more biological, and you have to have a little bit more sophisticated conversation. And then they're going to go be adults, and you have to have a little bit more of not just a biological conversation, but you've got to have a power emotional, sociological, interrelational conversation about, hey, what exactly this connotates and how important and significant this can be for your life and other people's life. And you've got to do that with your faith. When you're talking to your kids about their faith, we don't look at the little children's Sunday school and say, in 400 years, God's gonna abandon you and put you in slavery. We tell them, God is good and God loves you. But you know, when you get into faith, Jesus says, the world will hate you. And to know me, you must deny yourself. And the most profound way you're going to meet me is in suffering in this life. And, And if you don't know that, then doubt will come like an ocean in your life when those things happen to you. And you've got to grow up because God wants you to, you to have an assurance with a reality of life. And so assurance comes from growing up, but also comes from looking out. Look, How does Abram have assurance? It's, listen, not looking at himself. When you have doubts about God or you have doubts about yourself, the worst thing you can do is look inward about how passionate or how much faith you have. One pastor has this illustration he uses all the time. He says, if you're falling off of a cliff and you see a branch and you grab it to keep it from killing you, he says, what saved you, your grip or the branch? He says, it's the branch. The branch is what saves you and all, all you have to do is grab it. If you grab air, it does nothing. Nothing. Look, assurance is something the Bible desperately wants you to leave with this morning, but it comes not from yourself, but from putting the anchor of your life into something more strong. When the author of Hebrews is talking about the life of Abraham, here's what he says. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all the argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he had promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope Think of the hope set before us that we may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary around the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. You have an anchor for the rest of your life And all you have to do is look at Jesus. Dallas Willard, when he's writing on this passage, says something profound. He says, you know, when Abram was looking to God, he wasn't just looking that one day his sins would be forgiven. He expected him in that moment, in his life, for that promise of a child to be met. If you have doubts and concerns and questions You ought to be able to go to God now and expect him to want to give you an anchor. To meet your doubts with the same confidence that you go to a gas station and you know you'll get gas out of that machine. You can go to him now with your questions and he will want to answer them. And you can be sure. Let me pray. Father, help us to be sure. Lord, help us to look to Jesus and to make him the anchor of our soul, the anchor of our life. Lord, I pray right now, by by the power of your Holy Spirit, you, you would give us a new assurance Maybe even for the first time, Lord, that the anchor would be dropped from the boat and we would no longer drift. But we would see Jesus and stand firm in life. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay.